Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about what Trump is doing about war criminals. Maybe you heard that he's pardoning them and firing the Pentagon officials who object. Cheat here has a report and a political analysis. Also, more workers went on strike in America last year than any time since 1986, more than 20 years ago. There's something happening here. We have comment from Bryce Covert. But first, last month, Virginia became the first Southern state in the post-civil rights movement era to entirely flip back to Democratic control. How did they do it? Trump Watch starts right now. As we prepare for the 2020 election, Democrats need to learn the lessons of their historic victory last month when Virginia became the first Southern state in the post-civil rights movement era to entirely flip back to Democratic control. Virginia Democrats now hold the governorship and both houses of the state legislature. How did they do it? And can Democrats in purple or maybe even red states do the same kind of thing? For comment and analysis, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for the nation and a political analyst for CNN. And she's been covering Virginia politics closely for a while now. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. The Democrats won control of the Virginia governorship in 2017 and almost won control of the lower house. They won both upper and lower houses last month. What has that meant in terms of specific legislation? The the major thing that happened was that they were able to get some Republican votes to expand uh, Medicaid to about 350,000 Virginians. And so that, you know, that was very huge. And they also cut a deal that was kind of interesting where they got Hoff to expand Medicaid. It's a great deal, but you still have to come up with 10% of the cost yourself. And they managed to get Virginia hospitals to kick in that 10% because they, so many, especially the rural ones, were going out of business. So with the money that the hospitals replaced, they gave the biggest teacher raise in a generation. So this class of 17 came away with a lot of accomplishments and, and a real feeling of momentum. But the question really was, you know, in the summer, would they have the foot soldiers, um, and the organization and the money to do what they did in 2017 when they were the, the first big test for the resistance. Were, were, were people going to come from out of state and were their own people going to continue to mobilize? Uh, so that, that's what I went into my reporting uh, in the fall asking. And sometimes it looked questionable. And then in the end, it all came together. So we need to talk about the candidates the activists, the voting districts, and and the issues. There's a lot to cover. Maybe we should start with the candidates. In 2015, you report, the Democrats fielded only 56 candidates for the state's 100-seat House of Delegates, that's that's right. That is actually, you know, one of the one of the biggest takeaways from this two cycles. Then in 2017, they fielded 88, and this time around, they fielded 92 of 100. So only eight Republican seats in the far southwest corner of the state 
went unchallenged. And that is a huge deal. And, and because, you know, the, the torpor of Virginia was really reflected all around the country where people in the, the heyday of the Obama administration's plural, for whatever reason, started checking out on these statehouse races. And so Virginia 2017 was the first test of did people understand how much we had lost by ceasing to participate in in these elections. And it was an amazing win, and they showed that they could basically flip a very red body in two cycles. They did 15 seats in 2017, and they did six more this time around. And how... Uh progressive, how diverse was the roster of candidates the Democrats fielded in Virginia? It was unprecedented. I mean, you know, in 2017, we elected that we, I'm not, I don't live there. I don't know why I said we, but I feel, I feel it. Um, As we as Democrats elected first African-American woman to go to Virginia Military Institute and also first public defender first two Latinas, first two Asian women, first transgender women, people who were really running on their personal stories, and they all survived. They all won re-election. This time around, there's the first Muslim woman in the the, uh, Senate. We've got a DSA member. I mean, it, it really is a General Assembly that looks a lot more like Virginia than it did four years ago, that's for sure. And tell us about the uh, activists who who worked in the campaigns, both from inside the state and support from outside the state. Well, you know, the women, and I say women, and it really was a lot of women, um, but the people, I guess, the, the, the women and their supporters in Virginia, they never stopped. They mobilized for 2017. And then, remember, they flipped their congressional districts in 2018, based, yes. and based a lot on the organizing of 2017, these districts that had never been walked and never had, you know, Democrats show up at somebody's door and find out that, you know, your neighbor's a Democrat, but they're kind of afraid because they don't think there are any people like us out here. And then you find out there's a lot of you. All of that grassroots work paid off in the congressional elections, and it and it paid off again. So, you know, you had a lot of Outside groups, whether it's Emily's List, put $2 million in behind, uh, I think it was 38 women candidates. They've never done that in a state election, not even close. These groups did not just put in money. They really put in volunteers who were knocking doors. And Sister District, which is a a little group that I love, it's it's, uh, people, mainly women again, but not exclusively, in blue districts who adopt promising maybe purple districts with good state legislative energy going on. And again, they are focused on the state legislatures. They're not getting distracted by Congress or the, or the presidential, God forbid. They have gotten, you know, people in Virginia say a lot more sophisticated. There's just a lot more understanding of, of what works and messaging and, you know, sending people back to the same district so that they kind of, Sometimes they form relationships, other times they, you know, they at least learn about the, you know, the the issues of the district and the school, you know, the name of the the high school and the flooding problem in the creek down the street, you know, and they're, they're, they're learning a lot. And it, and it really, really paid off this time around. And another huge issue in many 
red and purple states is gerrymandering the the map of the voting districts. Remind us of the recent history of voting maps in Virginia. Well, they had been terrible, but a year and a half ago, court ordered to redraw them. And so that definitely contributed to the, the six seats, especially in the in the House of Delegates that they picked up. A lot of people said, you know, it was a great victory to have this capital of the Confederacy turn fully blue only after African Americans were given their full voting rights in terms of in terms of these maps. So, you know, it was really it was a great achievement for a lot of different movements that have come together in the last few years. And what kind of campaign did the Republicans run this year? Well, they ran a variety of campaigns. You know, in some places they ran ultra conservative, typical pro-Trump campaigns, but a lot of the folks in swing districts you saw a couple of major people, the uh, Speaker of the House, who's a diehard, diehard Republican. He left Republican off of a lot of his literature. But the, the ugly strain here, and we saw it in some swing districts, and it mostly didn't work, but it was a lot to cope with. But there were some awful attacks around the abortion issue. I mean, you know, progressives tried to introduce a progressive later abortion law that would liberalize the rules somewhat. I mean, it still would be less liberal than most than than blue states, let's put it that way. But you didn't have to have three doctors approve your medically necessary abortion. You could have one. But, you know, the person who was introducing it, terrific woman, delegate named Kathy Tran, she kind of flipped up in describing it, and it sounded like it would allow infanticide and then... Governor Ralph Northam did something similar, and it was they both cleaned it up immediately, and it's clear infanticide is and I believe always will be illegal, and we are talking about abortions before fetal viability, basically. But Donald Trump took it up at rallies, and the Susan B. Anthony crazy anti-abortion fund came in and put in a lot of money. They really, after losing so badly in 2017, they really thought that they were going to clean up on this. The Republicans raised this specter of infanticide. How did the Democrats respond to all of this? First, they responded like Democrats often do by running around in circles and trying to avoid the issue. And you had people like uh, Tim Kaine and former Governor Terry McAuliffe distance themselves from this particular bill, even though there really nothing wrong with it and it didn't do what opponents said. But then, you know, a lot of candidates got their messaging together. They, they came out with a, a pretty unified message that fewer than 1% of all abortions take place after 21 weeks, that, you know, when it occurs, it is almost always, you know, medically essential either for the life of the mother or the viability of, of the fetus. And they really also tried to talk to people, not just women, but people about what a tough choice it is, you know, that, that these are not decisions made blithely. And finally, as I said earlier, infanticide is illegal and will stay that way. So you saw this candor in commercials that I thought was really striking. Uh, and you also saw women who said they believe they won because of, of the candor in their commercials and that they felt 
based on their polling, and you know, I, I believe uh, NARAL Pro Choice America and Emily's List, and and I, I think Virginia Democrats too did polling and found out that you know, for Democratic and independent women, this is a winning issue. So pulling the lens back here, what concrete results can we hope for in the legislature of Virginia now? Well, I I do think that there will be another version of the later abortion bill to liberalize that. I know that Virginia could become the 38th state to uh, ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which could get that moving again. I believe there, there will be some good gun safety legislation. I believe there will be minimum wage legislation. One question is whether uh, the governor will allow, I don't, he can't stop it, but he's seen, there is some talk that he's discouraging the uh, reversal of their right to work law. And this is what we all have to start talking more about, that, that you know, Democrats get elected on all this public energy and unions are often part of it. They certainly were in Virginia. And then some Democrats get cold feet when it comes to doing something for unions. So we definitely have to keep an eye on that. I will keep an eye on that in in the coming months. But they now get to go on the offensive and, and really create an affirmative agenda and, you know, hopefully create some lessons for other states around the country. So I, I hope to be heading down there when the session starts. I really think it's going to be an interesting story. Joan Walsh's report on the Virginia election victories appears in the new special issue of The Nation magazine on abortion. Her piece there is titled Republican Attacks on Abortion Don't Send Democrats Running Scared Anymore. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time to talk about Trump's pardon of that Navy SEAL who committed war crimes and the Pentagon's pushback against Trump. For that, we turn to Jeet here. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be back. Well, this was the case of Edward Gallagher, the Navy SEAL, who was charged with more than a dozen criminal acts, including premeditated murder in Iraq. Remind us what he did. Well, uh, he's accused of a, a large number of acts, but I think the most, uh, uh, one of the most shocking is that there was a ISIS uh, soldier who was a teenager who was captured and sedated by his team, and Gallagher allegedly just took a knife to him and stabbed him in the neck, uh, uh, killing him. Trump has had been tweeting about this case for quite a while, hadn't he? Yeah, while the the trial was going on, which itself is very questionable whether a president should be doing this, Trump was saying, like, you know, they should leave uh, Gallagher alone. And uh, this is because there's a kind of network of supporters for Gallagher, especially on Fox News, and Trump had kind of made himself the champion of this cause. But it's also in keeping with Trump's larger policy, which is really keeping a campaign promise, which is that he wants to, like, sort of unshackle the military from the Geneva Convention. The military court 
heard this case last summer, more than a dozen charges, and Gallagher was found what? Guilty on all counts? No, he was uh, he found uh, guilty only on uh, one count. Uh, but this is just because it's, it's very difficult to get the military to punish uh, war criminals. The one count was that uh, he posed for a trophy photo, which is a very serious violation of sort of you know norms of decency. What exactly is a trophy photo? Uh, that's when you like sort of you know um, have a, a photograph of uh, someone, uh, an enemy combatant who's like either dead or captured and you uh, take a photo with them as a kind of, you know, mark of humiliation. So the jury found him guilty of only one count. And what was the sentence? Yeah, he had been sentenced to four months, uh, but he had already uh, served that time. So it was like, you know, he basically got time served and uh, was released. So the big issue here for the Navy was not just the sentence. There were some other potential penalties, at least, that the Navy considered. What were those? The Navy um, uh, had a peer-reviewed board which is going to consider a variety of uh, further punishments. They would include demotion, dishonorable discharge, and also the taking away of his um, Trident uh, medal that he was wore as a Navy SEAL, which is a very prestigious thing for um, uh, members of the Navy. Normally, this would be decided by the court, but this was the point at which Trump intervened directly. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, it was supposed to be decided by a sort of peer review board, uh, and uh, Trump intervened to say that, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, no, you know, this is my guy. You're not going to demote him. You're not going to dishonorably discharge him. And he gets to keep his uh, Trident medal. And that that is the sort of point of controversy he had with the uh, Navy secretary. Not only was Gallagher allowed to retire at his full rank with an honorable discharge, and not only did he get to keep the the darn pin, the trident pin, what was the Secretary of the Navy's role at this point? The Secretary of the Navy is a fellow named Richard Spencer, and he wanted to sort of preserve the autonomy of the military, and he was trying to lobby behind back doors to get Trump not to do these things. Uh, And basically, for for that reason, he was uh, punished uh, by the Trump administration and fired by the uh, defense secretary. After Richard Spencer, the secretary of the Navy, was fired, he wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post. Let, Let me quote, This was a shocking and unprecedented intervention in a low-level review. It was also a reminder that the president has very little understanding of what it means to be in the military, to fight ethically, or to be governed by a uniform set of rules and practices, close quote, Secretary of the Navy, after he was fired by the, uh, the, on orders of the president. So we are in favor of the military insisting that soldiers and sailors fight ethically and follow the rules which prohibit killing prisoners. That sounds good to me, but you have a different way of, of understanding this case. Tell us about that. Sure, yeah. No, I, mean, I, mean, I do think that Spencer should be admired for taking a stance on this case. I think that the issue, though, is that his framing of it is very narrow. I mean, he does say that, you know, we want soldiers to be fighting ethically, but the real concern is that Trump intervened on a you know, low-level review. Well, you know, I mean, he's commander-in-chief, He's the president, and we we do want sort of civilian uh, control of the military. And, I mean, like, I don't agree with what Trump did, but, I mean, I don't want the issue to be that it's, well, what's wrong is that a president is intervening in a military review. Uh, the, the problem is that, that Trump is sort of taking uh, figures like Gallagher, you know, like war criminals, and uh, 
bringing them close to him. He's hugging them. He's like, you know, making them. He reportedly wants to have Gallagher at the Republican convention oh. in 2020. Oh. Uh, and and but this is like part of a larger politics where Trump, like, you know, has no use for the Geneva Convention and really, you know, like has a kind of Rambo-esque view of the military, where like, you know, their hands are tied behind their back and they're not allowed to commit war crimes. And this is, you know, there's been several other cases where Trump has pardoned or mitigated the punishment of war criminals and he's like openly you know talked about you know wanting uh, to bring back uh, waterboarding and and uh, other atrocities so i think that's a problem and that's what should be addressed now i have to say the military is not the institution to address this because again we want so, you know, we don't want the military, uh, we want civilian control of the military. And I understand why Spencer and other military figures are trying to fight this on a bureaucratic level. They're trying to fight this as they know how and within the parameters of their power. They can't make a political case against Trump, normalization of war crimes. So you've said that Trump campaigned on this in 2016. He wants to get us out of the Geneva Conventions so we can do things like waterboard and torture. Uh, does Trump have the power to end American participation in the Geneva Convention? I don't know. He doesn't have uh, the power to that. He would have to go through Congress. But I think that what he's doing is making a de facto move to that end, right? Like if you have uh, American military uh, men committing war crimes and then being pardoned by the president, then like what, it, what are the laws of war then? And I think I think it has like a very long term impact because you know you could have a democratic president, but they you could again continue to have soldiers who think, well, uh, you know, like I'll do this, I'll just wait for the next Trump to be elected, and I'll get a pardon. And so I really think that he's used the power that he does legitimately have to like uh, do an end run around um, existing laws against war crimes. And you reported the nation that he's continued to talk about this case in his recent campaign appearances. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he he talked about it in the recent rally in Florida, and you know, using the rhetoric of the deep state, like, oh, the deep state wanted to punish this guy, and I went around it. And but this is also the problem with the sort of the way the military is framing this to say, well, Trump is not he's intervening against the rules and procedures. You know, if you watch movies, you know that that makes Trump the good guy, right? Like, you always have, like, you know, Dirty Harry uh, or Rambo, you know, the tough fighter who uh, doesn't obey the rules, and you have, like, the pencil pusher chief, you know, like, uh, who says, uh, uh, you're, you're violating the codes. Well, in that scenario, who is the hero? And Trump's rhetoric plays to that. He's saying, you know, like, it's these guys, armchair warriors in their air-conditioned rooms that are uh, pushing for these rules. So I actually think that, like, the way the fight is being set up, it plays to Trump's strength and it plays to what his audience wants to hear. So you argue that because the president does have the power to pardon war criminals, you conclude that military men do not have the power to stop Trump from normalizing war crimes. So what is to be done? Well, I think that we, we this is a political problem and it requires a political solution. So Trump's opponents, you know, including the Democrats, have to make a political issue of this. And then it's a difficult one because there are, Trump is playing to a genuine sentiment. And to put it in um, terms that, like, are the most sympathetic, the argument is, you know, we send these our young men and women in these horrible situations and, uh, you know, to fight war, which is a horrible thing. And, like, how are we to judge them? And so, so there's a kind of part of the population that's always sympathetic to that. But I think you actually have to make a political argument as to why this is wrong, that this is, you know, making the United States a pariah nation. It's a violation of basic codes of decency. And it also, like, undermines 
the you know cohesiveness of the military. So I, I think that you know you need a political argument to be made, and I appreciate the fact that the military can't make that argument. The people in the military are not able to do that. And, you know, the resistance that they can offer is only a bureaucratic resistance. But we've seen this in many times in the Trump administration. There's a sort of, you know, push to resist him on norms, whereas that's the real resistance has to come in politics. Jeet here, his piece, Trump has made the military safe for war criminals, appears at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. More workers went on strike last year than any time since 1986, more than 20 years ago. Something is changing in America. And for that, we turn to Bryce Covert. She writes about the economy for the nation in the New York Times op-ed page. She's also written for the Washington Post, New York Magazine, New Republic, and others. She's been on all the TV news shows. Bryce Covert, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Well, this year has seen some memorable strikes. Remind us about the highlights. Sure. Well, the year kicked off with some high-profile strikes. Many teachers in California um, and L.A. and Oakland and a couple other smaller cities went on strike. They were sort of continuing the wave of teacher strikes that we saw last year in a bunch of red states, uh, making similar demands for better pay and also better resources in the classroom. And then most recently, listeners will probably remember that there was a massive strike at General Motors. Uh, 46,000 workers uh, went on the picket line demanding better pay and also a rollback of some of the austerity that had been implemented at their company in the wake of the recession. Uh, And then there's just been a number of other strikes throughout the year in between. We've seen nurses go on strike, grocery store employees, even Uber drivers who are often now fighting just to be recognized as employees of Uber, uh, they refused to work earlier this year as well. So we have just seen a whole number of different strikes in different parts of the economy from different kinds of workers this year. Well, 2019 is not yet over, so we do not have complete strike statistics for this year. But what do we know about last year? Last year represented a huge spike in in a number of workers who went in on strike and as well as just the number of major strikes that happened throughout the year. 485,200 workers went on strike last year. That's more than any time since 1986. So we just have not seen that kind of activity in decades. Uh, there were 20 major strikes, like I said. That was the most since before the recession. And we really saw a huge drop in st- in strike activity right after this recession started. A lot of workers felt insecure about their jobs and not like they were in a place of power to make demands, and we just sort of saw that fall off. So that's what happened last year, we know, because that's the statistics we got, and I would expect that next year when we get the statistics done this year, we're going to see something very similar continuing, given that we've seen all this strike activity this year. Well, America used to be a place with a lot of strikes. When exactly what was that? Well, really throughout most of our history, uh, for the past 
I would say, half century leading up to the 1980s, we saw a lot of regular strike activity. You regularly saw hundreds of workers going on strike to demand better pay, better treatment from their bosses. But once you get to 1980, those numbers just fall off a cliff. And you can blame lots of different factors. I think there was a, a huge crackdown on unions and worker organizing in that era, starting with Reagan and his crackdown on lots of different union activity. And we haven't really recovered since. We're still not seeing the kind of strike activity we saw in the 1950s. But like I said, this year and last have seen a bit of a recurrence. We're it seems like American workers are kind of going back to those roots. Of course, there are really big differences among the strikes that you've talked about. The teacher strikes, which were so magnificent, are public sector unions. You know, usually teacher strikes are, are portrayed by the cities as uh, strikes against the parents and the families, but that's not the way the L.A. teachers won their strike. Yes, and I would say the same thing happened when Chicago teachers went on strike more recently. And with the teacher strikes that we saw last year, it's been interesting to see the shift, not only in the way the teachers are framing their issues, but I think more importantly in the way that they're being received by the media and by the country at large. Usually, teacher strikes are kind of portrayed as, you know, aggrieved teachers putting their own self-interest ahead of their students and, right. and hurting education. Instead, these teachers are saying, look, we are going on strike because you're not giving us the resources we need to best serve our students. And in fact, they've done a really amazing job, I think, at reaching out to students, at reaching out to parents and getting the community behind them so that it's not an us versus them, but the entire community making a demand for better money spent on education, not just on teacher salaries, which they are demanding they be paid more. They are not generally in this country paid very much, but also putting things like nurses and support staff into their classrooms and making sure their children have what they need to get a world-class education. It's a really interesting approach, and I think it really has worked, and the media has really treated these strikes differently than they used to. I think there's a lot of support behind them. Well, we record our show in L.A., and, of course, L.A. is a very big Democratic town, big liberal town, very powerful county federation of labor. But there were also amazing teacher strikes in Kentucky, in Oklahoma, in West Virginia, places that we don't think of as where liberals and labor are strong. How did that happen? That was really remarkable. This was most of the strikes that happened last year. And what's particularly remarkable, what happened in those states you just mentioned, is that the teachers there don't necessarily have even the right to go on strike. They're not supposed to legally go on strike, but their superintendents got behind them and closed schools in most cases so that they could walk off the job and go protest at the Capitol. Um, but it was a very risky move. A lot of the strikes were really a grassroots effort among the teachers themselves on Facebook groups and over text messages. They led the way saying enough is enough. We are fed up. We need more resources. I think very much sparked by the fact that we are still experiencing pretty deep austerity at the state level when it comes to education. It really has not recovered since the, re since the recession ended. And it's been a long time since the recession ended, and I think teachers are saying, okay, we are now due more than we've been getting. We've been talking about the public sector strikes. The auto workers provided fascinating contrast. We've always thought in their industry, 
workers organizing has been crippled by sending factories to Mexico and and getting parts from other third world countries, they've always been vulnerable to the threat that if they go on strike, the factories will just leave. How were they able to pull off a strike this year? Well, one of the demands they were making was to put more investment in jobs in the U.S. You know, General Motors, they wanted to demand that they not shutter factories that are located here and move them abroad. So they built that into the demands they had. I also think, too, that they are similarly fed up. You know, auto workers in particular swallowed a lot of rollbacks of their benefits and their pay and accepted things that they would not necessarily have before the recession when things got really tough for the three big automakers. And now they're saying, look, times are good now. The economy is healthy. More importantly, profits are healthy at the big automakers. We want to share some of that pie and we want to roll back all those things that we were forced to swallow to get through really tough times. They didn't get all of their demands, but I think that they were starting to push on this idea that they should just make do with the status quo. And the people who study strikes have told us for decades that the poorest workers, the part-time workers, the temporary workers are the least likely to strike. They have the fewest resources to organize. But you've said right now we've seen actions in the last two years by fast food workers, by Uber workers. How has that worked out? That has also been really interesting, and it's more of an alternative model. It's less of the traditional, you know, full-time employees who are part of a union going on strike as part of that union's activities. This is being done often outside of unions. Uber drivers are not necessarily classified as employees at all of Uber. So they are banding together and trying to use their power in numbers to bring attention to the issues and to try to force change their at the apps that they work for or the places that they work without that normal structure. And I think it's been pretty effective. I mean, the Fight for 15, which is the movement organizing fast food workers, has pushed the issue of a $15 minimum wage so far that it's reality in many places across the country. We've seen countless minimum wage increases instituted after they started organizing. I think they've really had a big influence. Um, It's yet to be seen, I think, what the influence of Uber drivers organizing is going to have. It's pretty new, Um, but they have been pushing their issues just as well, both legislatively and also trying to get the ear of the public. And it'll be interesting to see if they can continue on. One last thing. We haven't mentioned Donald Trump yet. Well, of course, his um, the people he has put in charge of the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations uh, Board, which both oversee a lot of these issues, strikes, labor conditions, um, are not worker-friendly, are much more corporate-friendly, and um, the NLRB in particular has been doing a lot of things to make it harder to organize, to make it harder to go on strike. So that's definitely a countervailing force. Um, But it's interesting, for example, today, Harvard students, grad students are on strike, even though the NLRB has been trying to say that they can't unionize and they can't strike. You see these students out there doing it anyway. So, yes, it makes it harder. um, But I think workers are so fed up in this country that they are pushing past those barriers and making their voices heard anyway. Bryce Covert wrote about strikes for the nation.com. Thank you, Bryce. Thanks so much. Well, 
that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.